Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Because I'm fine. Oh. E-M-I. 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 Hello. Welcome to IntelliCast. This is Season 5, Episode 31. And today, is I'm really looking forward to this episode. We just recorded it. And it is with Katrina Noel. She's the president of No Research. That's K-N-O-W. Um, and Casey Bernard, who is our senior, senior strategist there. And Mary Rose Draper of EMI fame. She's also on. And she heads up our data quality and network um, so that's a big role at EMI. And we really just had a kind of a conversation about data quality. And Katrina and Casey focused really on the qualitative side. We haven't really talked about qualitative um, data quality a lot. So the conversation is really kind of comparing qual and quant and how we can kind of work together on best practices. Um, before we get to that, I should probably talk about who we are. This is IntelliCast. Brian Peterson is here with me. Hello, Brian. Hello. And this episode is always brought to you by EMI Research Solutions. You can reach us at IntelliCast at EMI-RS.com. Follow us on Twitter, EMI underscore research or IntelliCast1. Please text us. If you're listening right now, text us, 513-401-5463. Um, back to Katrina and Casey and Mary. I'd love uh, feedback on this. Um, if you are interested in data quality, if you're listening, you probably are. Um, we could have probably talked forever. We really scratched the surface of this interview, but it's cool to hear um, data quality challenges from more of a qualitative perspective. And, you know, I saw Casey speak at the Georgia Future of Insights Conference and Katrina was there also. And I spoke about data quality. We just had a lengthy conversation afterwards at happy hour. And we thought, let's talk about this. What we're talking about should be on the podcast. Yeah. And when talking about it, it's not a whole lot of differences in the challenges people that each side is facing. Some of the same challenges we're, we in quant are facing, they're also facing in qual. Yep. So it's worth a listen. Um, Katrina is also speaking at CRC, um, Data Integrity and Trust in the Industry. She's on, I think she's on a panel, but she's been all over the place in the industry speaking about data quality. And she's um, lovely to talk to and a really good thought leader and business owner in our industry. So with no further ado, here's Katrina and Casey and Mary. Joining us now, I am really excited to have on, we have Katrina Noel and Casey Bernard. They're both of No Research. Uh, Katrina is the president of No Research and Casey is the senior strategist. Uh, welcome, ladies. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Oh, so to be We've been talking about this topic for, well, us together have been talking about this for a couple of months. And so I'm, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you all. Um, I think we have a lot in common that we share a passion for um, respondent quality. And um, I think we've had some challenges in the industry over the past. Well, this isn't, it's always occurred, but I think it's been increasing the past couple of years. Um, and so between you, and Mary and I and Brian, I'm sure we'll have an opinion on this. I'd love to have a conversation because 
you have different roles than we have. And so I'd love it if you all kind of talked about no research and what you all do. Yeah, happy to. Um, I just thank you so much for the invitation to come on and join each other on our soapboxes, because I think this is definitely a soapbox topic. Um, And so and I also think that it's important for companies like ourselves who are more qualitatively focused to have a voice in this conversation, because I think a lot of the conversation around quality has to do with sample. not that that shouldn't be addressed, but, you know, it seems like it's reserved to kind of cleaning sample, um, whereas us on the qualitative side end up being a little bit more in the trenches on the front lines with with the human beings behind that fraud and quality, those fraud and quality issues. And so um, it's it's almost um, it's just a different experience when you're not deleting a row of data, but you're actually talking to a human being <laughs> and trying to figure out what to do. So um, I think, you know, my big passion point around this was when I noticed that it was really affecting our industry and the work we were doing. And it was putting my team in a position of making subjective decisions about other human beings in the moment um, based on believability. And it was not feeling good to any of us. Um, And so we were kind of looking for more systematic approaches and how we could keep it from happening and keep, you know, close that door sooner so that we weren't, you know, in the moment um, having difficult um, assessment issues. Um, And Casey, I know that you've, you've walked into this on a few of our projects as well. Yeah. What's really awkward is if you are like me, I was um, on my own freelancing. And so I would work with Katrina's team or I'd work with other teams. And so I just got off a project with another team and lo and behold, here's Steve, who I saw on a project with another team last week. And so, you know, that's totally fine. If that guy uses hair care products one week and financial services the next week, that's realistic, but it also feels a little off. Um, that's just one example, but, um, yeah, you're in a position where you're like, it's hard enough to have a conversation with a stranger anyway. It's hard enough to get this job done. And then if you're wondering if they're being who they say they are as well, it adds another layer of challenge. And I'll, I'll admit that I've been in quant for so long and specifically online quant for so long that sometimes I think, I love that you said human beings. We, we try to talk about that in quant about they're real people. But a lot of times they are a row of data. And so, yeah, I'd love to maybe talk about challenges that you see. And I bet they're very similar to what we see. And one way you have an advantage that you can see Steve, right? And we, mm-hmm. a lot of times we, we're not even sure in, in our world, sometimes that they're a real human being. Mm-hmm. So you can at least check that box. Um, so that's one maybe small advantage that you have. But then you have other things too. I saw Steve this week and... And then I saw him again yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's a, certainly a unique thing because we can we can use technology to block those types of people generally, right? And yeah. I think it adds a layer of complexity when Steve. We've had this issue where Steve has a very thick accent and says he's from Georgia, <laughs> but you know it's nine o'clock at Georgia and the sun is up where Steve is, you know things like that. So but then that puts us in an awkward position because maybe there is a guy in Georgia with a thick accent. Like we don't know, but it's, yeah. it, it just gets dicey. And so you're talking, so what type of qualitative do you typically do? Is this, are we talking mostly um, given we're still not completely removed from the pandemic and back to how we were acting in 2019? Is this a lot of like WebEx interviews and Zoom interviews or is this still in person? 
Well, we've, I mean, we've been almost 50-50 digital and in-person since about 2010. So for us, the pandemic was not a move to digital. It was just kind of a a fine-tuning of the tool set for a lot of our clients. Um, We made that decision pretty early for a number of reasons and just were sort of well set up, honestly, for for what happened. Um, In-person is slowly coming back. We actually did a pretty hefty project during the pandemic um, because it needed, it was a physical thing and needed to be tested. Um, but we're, we're inching back up into more in homes and in stores and, um, you know, people in any size group around different physical tables rather than virtual. Um, we did see an uptick in the kinds of, um, quality issues that we've been talking about, um, during that time, during the, everybody moving online. Um, I, I mean, I do think it's for a lot of reasons, not only a technological capacity of people being able to game the system, but also we pay a lot in quality. It's kind of a worthy system to gain. If you think about it, I think that's a whole other podcast episode about incentives and, you know, all of that, but I think that goes into it. Um, and also, um, there was so much online work being done. I think it got the attention of potentially more bad actors than already knew about us. Um, we did a, we pulled together a physical group of people in the spring who basically owned up to being professional participants and, you know, making a really good living. They shared how much they made and how many 1099s they got from how many different companies um, and sat around a table and talked to us about how they do that. And it was fascinating, Um, you know, and, and whether they're being prompted to say something or whether they're reading between the lines and know what to say and decide they're a father for this project, even though they're not in the database, you know, it was, it was, it was grim, um, fascinating and extremely helpful, but we kind of put that into a one bucket. So there, there are these people that do a lot of research that know what research about game, the system, you know, to, to Casey's point may not do all the behaviors that say they do. And then you have to kind of negotiate that. There are some, there are other issues when we're talking about the sun not being up in Georgia, where they are, they are actually not qualified participants. They are not um, based in the country we need to be them to be based in. They are creating entire personas and lives um, to kind of get into the study. Um, and so we're not quite sure what to call that yet. Um, but I think it's a different issue than professional participants um, who kind of are coming from a different angle, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, Mary, I want to bring you in. I know you have thoughts here. But first, I'm fascinated by the fact that you did a focus group with professional respondents. Did you recruit them as we're having a focus group with people that take lots of surveys? Or was it a little bit more secretive? Did you hide the topic a little bit? Um, we said we were doing a group about improving the participant experience. <laughs> so, you Very know, smart. like... Um, but once, I mean, we did screen them to make sure they participated in at least a project a month. Like that was a requirement for being there. Um, and then about halfway through, we also did a series of webcam interviews. So we did one, um, physical group and then we did, I think it was 10, um, webcam interviews. And for those, we actually recruited people we knew were fraudulent that we had kicked off of past studies. And we invited them intentionally to come and talk to us. Um, and that went less successfully. They really have their game down. Like we could not, we could not get them to open the window behind them to see what the weather was like outside. There was, you know, the window was broken in air quotes. So yeah, that was, that was tough when we got them in person and they were, they were riffing off each other. It was okay. But man, 
those those digital participants kept their story. Oh, um, did my IP address say I was in New York? I was traveling last week, and now uh, I'm staying with my sister. It, you know, they had it down. <laughs> well, Mary, I love your thoughts, but I that's what I miss about Tuolumne. I bet Mary does too. We don't have the war stories you'd have. Like we don't have fun stories like that. Like every once in a while we'll have a fun open end. <laughs> that's about it. Mary, what are your thoughts on this? There's a fraud component. There's a professional respondent component. You've done qual and quant. What are your thoughts? Um, I think, um, well, going back to your your point about we're not sure what to call these respondents, I have heard someone recently refer to um, the person who is um, changing their persona as being like the imposter respondent. Um, and so I kind I like that I like that phrase. Um, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into like the the behaviors of those types of respondents. I think um, that would be a really cool deep dive. Um, I for a long time have had some issue with the phrase or the term um, professional respondents because I think that I think we could be talking about different things. So there are definitely people who make it their jobs you know they they game the system and they try to participate in as much research as they can because they uh, think that it's seemingly an easy way to um, earn additional income um, but I think that that's different than maybe um, a professional respondent in the regard of someone who is in a database that they're on either a panel or a list and they're a trusted respondent. So they're someone who is knowledgeable about topics. They participate in either focus groups or IDIs or, you know, in-home ethnographies. And maybe they're doing online surveys and they're they're just a good participant. They're giving actual answers um, and maybe they're, they're being sought after more frequently because of that. And we, and we know that there are going to be people who are participating in research, getting invitations from a variety of different panel homes, if you will. I mean, I, in our terminology, we're thinking about panels. I'm sure the companies that you're working with that are recruitment sources, um, maybe not only online panels or qualitative recruitment facilities. But again, I do think that there's something to be said about the respondents who actually are really good at it and they're professionals at being respondents, just maybe honest. Um, so I, th I think that we need to, as a research industry, kind of be better about clarifying some of those buckets. Um, now, I don't love that Steve maybe <laughs> says that he does one thing today and then a week later, I think moderators have a, a unique bird seat here to see the types of you know participants that are happening I remember from our our mall my mall days um, having someone come in for a product placement and you know one one day they come in and they're getting diapers and you know a week later they're coming in and they're getting you know sodas to try and, and maybe they've changed their wig and they look you know um between the sessions and, and they're using a different name or something. And so it's definitely interesting, the challenges that we face um, for people trying to game the system. But I, I do try to, I, I want what's best for our clients, but I think in general, our industry, we're not doing enough to protect the people who are doing the right thing either. And so it, I'm, I'm interested to hear more about your thought of you classified someone as being a professional respondent or someone who was a, a, a regular respondent having participated in once a month, maybe something qualitative. And so I'm curious, are there, and I'm, I'm less familiar, are there different standards in the qualitative space for how often we want someone to participate or not participate? 
Well, to be perfectly honest, what we have learned is no one answers that question truthfully. So why it is still in screeners is beyond me. Absolutely. So I think taking that out because they will, they will say more than six months, like they know. Right. And actually to your point, Mary, I don't care. I don't care if they talked to ba- about to somebody else about batteries a couple weeks ago, if they're an eloquent participant and they do all the things and fine. I think it's, it's what we're trying to protect. I think by that question is any conflict of interest in a, from a category level, if they are learning proprietary things about a certain category industry brand, we, you know, the example is always, you don't want them to do a Coca-Cola group one week and a Pepsi group the other week, right? That's, that's what we're trying to protect. So I think we as an industry need to figure out how to get to that, if that's what we're concerned about, because right now it's a throwaway question, right? That we can't quite believe that everybody knows that's why that's in there. So we need to get cleverer um, to make sure that people who do research regularly, let's just call them that, right? Um, we'd love there to be more of them, right? That's part of, part of this is right. we want more right. people interested in doing research. We want good people to do the research that they're qualified for. But I think the way we're asking questions is not helping us protect what actually needs to be protected. I completely agree. We, we see the same thing in our research on research that um, you'll ask a respondent uh, how many surveys they've participated or how many panels they're on. And we can see from behind the scenes from some of the data that we collect that they're definitely on, you know, eight of the panels that we've researched, we can see their activity that they've participated in, you know, maybe 10 or even 20 different attempted surveys in that day, but the, the data does conflict in, in most cases where, you know, you say 10 and we see 20, you say two panels, we see 10. So that is, it's a, it's a gray area, I think, for both sides of the industry. Well, it's actually pretty correlated. We found that what people say, you can almost put a factor on what the true answer is. It might be 2x or 4x, which is somewhat interesting from a research perspective. But, you know, on, on online quants, we have a new, it still is an infancy. We have the ability to, with a lot more digital fingerprinting, to know something about respondents. And it's got lots of challenges with it in our world with privacy and PII and what's ethical. And also, we don't have standard practices. So to be transparent, we partner with Research Defender. They've been a partner with us for a long time. They have a measure called activity data, which um, I think people misinterpret that what that means, but it's roughly, we can estimate how many surveys someone has taken over a certain time period. And then we, you know, Mary and I had this conversation yesterday. Should we keep someone that has taken 20 surveys in 24 hours if they're a good respondent? And so that's kind of an analysis that we're doing. We have an advantage in quant that we have some... While it's in its infancy, we have a little bit advanced digital fingerprinting techniques. I'm curious if you and Qual have that ability or if there's something that maybe we could learn from you or and maybe you could learn from us. I'd love your thoughts on that. Maybe Katrina, we'll start with you. So... I am sitting on something that has been newly named the DII Council about data integrity from the Insights Association, um, primarily to wave the flag that it is not that different over here in qualitative land. (laughs) So those same digital fingerprinting techniques can and should be used in qualitative. We do need to pre-screen using some objective measures, and there are lots out there. There are lots of different companies, products, services where you can try to cut things off at the pass. 
we, I think, need to put in extra measures in qualitative, but we should definitely lean on the technology that's being built because a sample set is a sample set. We get a, cli a client list. We put a widget on a website and people sign up through that. We do any number of mechanisms to get participants interested. You know, we recruit people out of a quant survey. If they answered in this way, we want to do a deeper dive. Let's get them to come talk to us. So wherever our sample comes through, we need to make sure the quality is up to standards, right? Because if we book 20 interviews and four of them aren't who they say they are, that is that is not us delivering upon the objectives of the research or, you know, looking good or serving our client in the best way possible. So I think we we need to be even more vigilant. So we should use everything that's being built plus. Um, our pluses, if they are not being run through something like that, we will do it ourselves. We have relationships with those companies so we can add that that screening in. Um, we've We've hand-checked IP addresses. We will look people up on social media to make sure they say they are. Um, we call them, we ask them to submit video articulation questions or audition questions. There's lots, there's more things we can do because we're doing this intensive scheduling process. Um, one of the scheduling tools we actually use um, has, a, IP, collects IP addresses as part of the scheduling. And so we can do a quick scan of those to make sure they are where we think they should be. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a yes and I think in, in qualitative. Um, and I, I, I am here to bang the drum that qualitative needs to be aware of everything quant is doing so that we can leverage that so that we don't have people on the phone checking and finding out then like, please help us like, you know, make the funnel so that we have less issues once we get on the phone, you know? And I completely agree with you. And in some ways it's more imperative for you because, you know, if we find a bad respondent, we can remove and replace them. Right. You, it's in front of the in front of the client many times, right? The client sees it as client evident, and a lot of times we have we're fortunate that we can we can remove poor respondents and replace them pretty seamlessly. Where you don't have that ability, so I think that it's even more imperative for you to. We should be learning from you what you're doing with digital fingerprinting because it's it's much more apparent. So I'm just going to give you an example. So this is how. I, I don't know if we're ever going to be a step ahead of this, but I want to be fewer steps behind. Okay. So we run a survey. It goes through all the digital fingerprinting checks. Our great quant partners do absolutely everything they can. They clean hundreds of responses out of the data, right? Send it to us. Um, we looked at the opt-ins, how many of these people are available for qualitative. Okay. And then we read all the open ends. We clean 34 more people out from a person reading the open ends and saying, this contradicts this other thing, or this is gibberish. So that's a human being reading through like 400 responses, cleaning some out, right? Then we schedule people, we check IP addresses. We During the phone reminder process, one of our researchers discovers that one of the participants has said he lives in a different place at three different stages of these checks and decides to cancel him. Now that is intense. That is like so yeah. many layers, right? So yeah. I think I think it's not like a set of best practices. It's like here's all the tools. Like which tools are you going to use in this case? Um, and you know we caught it, and then we were able to go back to that opt-in list, find another participant, and put them into the project. But that's a, that's an intensive amount of work. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say sometimes. I just wanted to say sometimes it's you also have to go on your spidey senses, and you have to. Um, just 
like I, even before the pandemic, we were doing online research where it was like the bulletin board kind of thing where people would come and do a time extended. And that's where I would see a lot of this. Um, and an example I had was a woman uh, was supposed to be a skincare product. And for 20 year olds, she was not 20. And I was like, but then you're like, I don't want to say you don't look 20. So these are like, she met, she got through all those steps, but she was taking her picture from really far away. <laughs> she was doing all these things, trying to stay in the study. So then we have to, you know, hands-on go through and clean out that person as well. So there's just so many different variables here. I'm so jealous that you all get to have tell fun stories like that. We just <laughs> it's, always it's not fun while they're, while you're in it. It's not fun. Now it's, now it's a charming story for a podcast, but it is like yeah. trauma when it happens, you know, sure. it's severe. When you expect 10 people to show up to your group and, and, and you're only allowed to accept six of them because four of them are clearly not honest. Um, that has a much larger implication on their research. So I, I sympathize with um, qual because your base sizes are smaller and there's, there's just a, a bigger ramification for having a fraudulent um, respondent. Um, what I envy is the timelines that you have in order to course correct. Um, and I think that that's something that I that I hope that our side of the industry adopts a bit more. You mentioned having, you know, the ability to do a recruitment and you're, you're disqualifying people based off of a screener and then a validation call. And, and there are all these layers and that takes time to go through all of those steps. And I feel like you're um, maybe in a better seat to budget those timelines with your clients. Um, whereas I think what we do oftentimes has to be a lot faster. And so the, the fraud checks and the validation checks have to happen so fast um, when it comes to administering a survey that we just don't really have as much time to um, take some of those extra steps that you guys that you guys have. And to be honest, we have the time if we build it in. We don't have the time if we don't. So if that happens during field work, we don't have any time. We've now lost time and we have to go back and replay and explain to the client what is happening and apologize, fall on our sword a little bit and make good on it. So I think as we're having conversations with our clients now and saying, hey, this you know integrity issue is really important to us, we are going to put more initial checks in. Our timelines are going to increase and our budgets are like our costs are increasing because we're adding more steps and having that conversation is difficult because it's, you know, it is because we care. It is because we're ensuring the quality of the work. However, it is casting a degree of light and skepticism on the quality of the industry in general. And what do you mean there's fraud? And so we have to kind of balance that conversation of there is this sort of systemic issue. We need to put more checks and balances in place to ensure the quality of your data. And it has these implications. Um, and so we're, we, we are sort of playing around with having those conversations so that it's not throwing the quality of the industry under the bus so that we're looking like good partners. Um, but we are, you know, we do need to pass some of that time and cost through because it, it it's not, it's, it's not coming from the ether, right? That's actually like human hours that are being, being used to do this. Um, and I think if we, we, we just want to raise the awareness in general that this needs to be done. Um, we actually got into a, a situation with a client recently, we were going off of a, a list provided and found so much is issues. We actually um, tried a couple of the different, um, you know, quant digital fingerprinting check tools. We did a couple trials with them on the same list 
and they flagged different fraudulent participants from each other and from the person who had called them. So we had three ways of checking this list and each identified issues, but they were different issues. And we went back to the client and we told them this, and this is like, take a deep breath, right? Because we're supposed to do qualitative. If we're saying it's difficult to recruit qualitative from the list that they have provided to us, that is a very difficult conversation. So I think we all as an industry need language. We need um, you know, ways to talk about this, to explain this issue, to explain what we're doing and why the vigilance time and energy is needed to ensure the quality. Well said. One thing that we think that we have a challenge in quant, I bet you have the same challenge in qual, is that I feel like with the emergence of DIY tools, we have a lot of people that don't have the same rigor around quality checks and therefore maybe not designing research in the ideal way to catch poor respondents and ultimately enabling poor respondent behavior. And I think that's a big challenge on the quant side. It's a huge challenge that anybody can, literally anybody right now could log on to a DIY platform and launch a survey and have results back in a couple hours. And who knows if that data is good or not. And so a respondent feels like, hey, I did a good job. I wasn't even paying attention. That That's pretty common, I think, that we have to, those of us that certainly have rigorous data checks and have clients that are very particular about the quality of their data set, then we have to try to fix that. And it's, I bet that happens in qual too. Is, do you have like a DIY kind of challenge in qual? Yeah, that's, that's where we sourced those participants for that group was. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, you know, the democratization of research um, yeah. and the DIY platforms are, it's such a double-edged sword. It's so great that more people are getting customer insights into their decision-making process. Like, yep. Hands down, good. More research is always good. But I think um, without a lot of instruction, guidance, handholding, best practices being available, you know, there there is some perpetuation of things. Um, and then those, I mean, there are Reddit threads and user forums and all these things where people let them know where all the other platforms are that you can, can sign up on, right? And then there's referral bonuses. So if you bring a friend, so, okay, I'll get like, my whole family in you know, this other region to sign up. Um, so yeah, I think sometimes we are we are perpetuating some things. Well, I would like to end the podcast on a more positive note. We've talked about all the challenges we face in um, quant and qual and in survey research, but um, I think our industry is making a lot of improvements. And so I don't know who wants to start. I'd love to hear more about the DII Council. I know you're speaking at CRC. And I don't know if anybody has any final thoughts on maybe more positive progress we're making in survey research. And I'm looking for, an, Mary, do you want to go first? I don't often call on you first. What are your, do, you, do you feel good about data quality moving forward? I do feel good about it moving forward because I think that um, conversations like this and others that we have with um, different partners in our space and customers, um, that there's just a passion um, for us to be aligned on getting better results and, and finding um, new innovative ways to get to those better results and, and building the trust in our end clients in our industry. And so I think that I feel good about the fact that there is a passion 
towards it. Um, I don't know that, you know, there's any one um, governing entity that has figured out the right way to make everyone aligned on standards and best practices and, and enforcing those habits necessarily, but I think we're moving in that direction. And so I feel good. I feel good about that. Um, again, having conversations like this, because, you know, there are, you know, some, some, cases where it's kind of like, well, it doesn't impact me. I don't want to see it. And you want to be kind of blind to what's actually going on just so that you can get to the end of your day and, and have, you know, the base size that you need in order to generate a report for your client. And that's, those aren't healthy practices. So I think, I think we're seeing that less and there's more of a collaboration, you know, happening like, like circumstances like this, where we are kind of um, reaching across the aisle to say, what are you doing that's working? How can I help you um, improve your practices? How, what can I learn about how you're doing things to improve upon ours? Um, you know, and I think we, we mentioned here at EMI often like a, the rising tide raises all ships. And, and I think that that's happening now. So I'm, I feel good about the direction things are going in general. Well said, Mary. Thank you. Casey, let's have some positive <laughs> where the industry is moving forward. Um, yeah. Research is awesome. People should be spending more money on research. We're improving respondent quality. Yeah. What, what can you give me? Well, I just want to say I've been in this business for a lot longer than I care to admit because I came <laughs> out of grad school in the early 2000s. And so it, I feel like, especially seeing your presentation in Georgia, I felt like we've come from, you know, we were doing mail-in surveys and then, you know, online panels were growing. And now it's been like 20 years of online panels and people are talking like, okay, wait, we need to fix some of these things. It's gotten a little too big. And, um, you know, pairing that with behavioral data and all that kind of data that we have on top of it as well. And the ease that now we can do one-on-one -on -one qualitative interviews over Zoom. There's so many opportunities to just like use all these tools that we have now to make it even better. I hope that's positive enough. Oh, incredible. Thank you. Kate. <laughs> I Train think that's positive. And, and Casey, you, you sent me, you're like, look, this is happening at the QRCA. So the qualitative yeah. group, you know, um, is also putting into this, into their content lineup. Um, Case for Quality has been at all of the association events, Insights Association, SMR had a big meeting about this um, at Congress the other week. Um, I think the momentum is there and the talking about it is there and not like pushing it under the rug. Um, I, and the technology is also there in ways to support us too. I think what's important is that this is not about finger pointing. This is about collaboration and this is about learning from each other and pushing us all forward. And Mary, I don't know about kind of somebody entity telling us this is the way you have to do it. I think it's kind of about options because every project methodology sample requires different techniques. Um, so I think it's more about compiling, like what is everything that you can do so that every entity within this space takes it upon themselves to think about it and to consider what am I doing and how can I put some integrity quality checks in place for whatever it is I'm doing in my role on this project. Um, and I, and I think that's, that's really what I want to stress is that it's, it's no one's fault. It's all of our responsibility. And I think people are kind of taking that gauntlet up like, yeah, what can I do? This, this isn't okay. I take pride in my work and I want to make sure that the quality stands up. So what can I, in my capacity do to help us all get better? Oh, Katrina, so well said. I'll try to summarize my thoughts. I think it's a combination of all three of you that I think it's often overlooked the passion, like 
on the supply side, especially, that we have towards ensuring that we're providing quality data to our respondents. We're all trying very hard. We're all doing things that most people don't know about. We're part of committees, industry-wide committees. We're collaborating with people. We're learning new things. We're trying to borrow technology and we're trying to maybe learn from qual, learn from quant. Um, and that's something I'm very proud of is that, uh, you know, sometimes we're all competitors, but you can be in a room a competitor and work towards a common solution for to lift up the entire industry. And that's one thing I love about this industry is that there's so many people that are willing to do that. And um, so I am certainly positive about the future of survey research. I think it's, um, it's not going to be perfect overnight. It'll never be completely perfect because we're dealing with human beings. And so there's always going to be some sort of level. We can reduce that with all of this hard work. So um, I really appreciate you coming on, Katrina and Casey. Um, is there anything you want to promote? Do you want to promote your CRC presentation or your website? What can you promote for me? Um, we did just write a participant integrity white paper that kind of um, outlines the saga that we have been on for the past year or so and some of the best practices that we are currently employing at No Research, um, which is downloadable on our website. Um, and also there, even if you're not at CRC, the call to action from the DII Council is to take a data integrity pledge. So oh. we are going to be pushing that out there and there will be a TBD landing page on when you can say, yes, myself and my company has take, have taken the pledge to make this important within our organization. So we're excited about that. This is really supposed to be a like we're all talking about right now, getting everybody engaged and involved in making this a priority. So that's my soapbox for the next couple of months. <laughs> awesome. Well, I really appreciate y'all coming on. We could have talked for another, I don't know, hour, two hours. Um, so I apologize if we didn't get to all the topics. And if you want more, if you're listening, reach out to either Katrina or Casey or Mary and I. We're all passionate about it. And this is what we do all day long. So um, again, thank you all so much. And I'm looking forward to your presentation at CRC. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.